You're listening to the Life Tree Church Sermon of the Week. We pray that as you hear this word, you would be encouraged and inspired as you pursue Jesus in your everyday life. So today I'm going to continue on a message that I started last week. Um, sometimes you have messages that are, that are standalone messages. And other times you have series where the messages can stand alone. This feels like one um, where they really build, they really work together. And so the reason I'm saying that is that if you're here hearing this today and, and you care about um, where we're going, what we preach, what we believe around here at Life Tree, and you want to track more with the foundation of what I'm speaking into today, I really want to encourage you to go back and listen to the message from last week. Uh, there's multiple places that that can be found. Uh, one of them just being simply our Facebook page. Uh, other, we have a, a podcast where we post them. But anyways, I really want to encourage you guys to do that. I'll do a brief review on it. Um, but even before I do, I just want to kind of express a bit of my heart into why I'm speaking into some of the things that I am in these weeks. And uh, scripture that was coming to my mind as we were singing these glorious truths about King Jesus was something Paul says in 1 Timothy 3.15, and he's describing the church, and he says this, I write so that you may know how you ought to conduct yourself in the house of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and ground of the truth. Uh, That ground of the truth can also be translated the mainstay of the truth. And there is a role, I believe, that we as the church have in the world that is to actually uphold truth in the earth. And so, so there's just things we step into, wade into, and that's a bit of, um, bit of what's in my heart coming into today um, and these weeks. And so jumping into a bit of just review from last week for those of you who weren't here so you can kind of catch up. We read from Psalm 19, and Psalm 19 talks about how what God has created is actually declaring his glory. It's proclaiming to us a message about God's glory and his goodness and who he is and what he's like. And then the psalm goes in and it continues on talking about the goodness of God's law and his commands and his statutes. And it speaks about them in these really like endearing terms. And what we see in it is that there is this, um, this concept that scripture holds up to us that God's law is actually connected to the law of nature itself. That they're not separate things, right? And that, that it's actually rooted in the natural law. The moral law that God teaches us through scripture is rooted in the way the real universe is. Are you with me? And so one of the things we see prominent in our day, and we talked about worldviews and all sorts of stuff last week, and we're going to do a bit more of that today. Um, I, I have concern that sometimes we may hang in too much philosophical realm, but my hope is that God's going to apply it and use it. Uh, but what we can see in our day is this, what we call a fact-value split. In other words, we have these scientific facts that we all hold as like public knowledge and their objective truth. But value gets relegated to this subjective realm and that you're supposed to keep private and to yourself. But in reality, Scripture is seeking to teach us values that are rooted in the way the natural world really is. They're held together, not split apart. Are you with me? And so what we want to be doing is exploring the way that that fact-value split, this concept, works out in other areas. 
and kind of compare how that works out, compare with biblical view. And, uh, and particularly today, I want to touch on how it relates to our actual physical bodies. Because the Bible actually thinks very highly of our bodies, which is kind of what we're going to see today and what we're going to look at. And what we do with our bodies really matters. But the, the reason we go into this, again, this is review from last week. I just want to say is that um, because when we fall away from God's design, for the way he created things to be, it's tragic. Why? Because what he's designed is so good. He has such a gloriously good plan and design for us that when we miss the mark on it, it's tragic. It's like the death of a dream, you could say, right? And, um, and so sometimes we get into these conversations around morality and we ask questions like, well, what's, what's wrong with fill in the blank? And, and in many ways, I think that that question leads us into a low-level conversation. Again, this is repeat from last week, but better questions I would suggest we ask is, what's the purpose for which God made this, that, or the other thing. And when we begin to see the purpose written in what he's made, the answer to questions like what's wrong with becomes self-evident and clear because you see how good what he designed is. And I, I say that because I find that sometimes when we start to talk about these things, we fall into this paradigm of culture war. And I think it's, a, it's a actually a misleading paradigm. I would offer to you a different paradigm of rescue mission. That, that to uphold the truth in our day and to the world and to people who are misled is actually a part of God's rescue mission. Because when we get into the culture war, you see, sometimes we end up believing that someone we disagree with is our enemy. Right? Not good. The, the scripture's truth that it offers to us is motivated by love for people and to see people come into all that God has made us to be. Can I get an amen? And so our goal is not to win arguments, it's to win people. Okay? Uh, we want to be a people who are excited about the beauty and the purpose of God's world and the way he's made things, not just defending our view. Are you with me? I feel like I'm going to say that lots today because we're in this idea realm. Are you with me? Are you with me? Uh, but so what I want to do today for some scripture we're going to read is we're going to read from Romans 1. Uh, it's, it's a beautiful and also very controversial passage of scripture to some because um, it talks about this thing called the wrath of God. Um, but I want us to look into it because it really carries on the idea we were seeing last week in Psalm 19, okay? That the, that the creation speaks of God's ways, teaches us how to operate in God's world. So we're going to dive in. Are we ready? This is going to start in uh, verse 18. So I'm going to back up. I'm going to go verse 16. Starla, I know I didn't give you give you that, but I'm going to back up and start in verse 16. We're going to read all the way to verse 25. Here we go. For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes, for the Jew first and also for the Greek, 
For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, the just shall live by faith. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth and unrighteousness. Because what may be known of God is manifest in them, for God has shown it to them. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made even his eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. Because although they knew God, they did not glorify him as God, nor were thankful, but became futile in their thoughts, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Professing to be wise, they became fools, and changed the glory of the incorruptible God into an image made like corruptible man, and birds, and four-footed animals, and creeping things. Therefore God also gave them up to uncleanness in the lusts of their hearts to dishonor their bodies among themselves, who exchanged the truth of God for the lie and worshiped and served the creator, sorry, the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. Now I would just want us to draw some highlights out of this. Um, first one, this is a tangent, but it's worth noting and seeing in this passage. And if we read on, you'd see it repeated two more times. Um, but what's amazing and a bit frightening to me when I read this is when we hear about the wrath of God, the way it's exercised in the passage is that he lets us go our own way. He says he gives us up. He gives us up to these mis misleading beliefs on and on, right? He gives us up to it. The, the wrath of God is simply him going, have your way, and letting us go. That to me is, is sobering, frightening, and, and the idea is, is, is just we really do so well to understand our dependence on him and knowing and understanding his ways. Listen to the, you know, the, the phrases he uses, suppress the truth. They were ignorant of God, essentially. They weren't thankful to him. We exchange the truth for a lie. And look at how he says this. We became futile. I'm going to switch it to we, because really, if you read on, he, he points out he's applying this to all of us. We became futile in our thoughts, and our foolish hearts were darkened. Professing to be wise, we became fools. Now compare that to what we read last week from Psalm 19 that talks about how the law of God makes wise the simple. It's radiant and gives sight to our eyes, right? So when we're, when we're leaning into understanding who God is and what he's like, it gives sight to our eyes. It makes wise the simple. When we ignore, when we suppress, when we don't actually lean in and seek to understand him, the exact opposite happens. The heart and the mind is darkened. Professing to be wise, we become fools. And ultimately, what I want us to catch today is that what happens when we're given up is it says we actually dishonor our bodies. Not just God, we dishonor our bodies. Our bodies have written into them design and purpose and intention from God like all of creation does. Our body has profound worth, dignity, and purpose written into it that is to be honored. Right. 
And we can do things with our body that don't honor our body. They don't honor the design that is present within them. It may seem silly, but I'm reminded of when I was working with a roofing company in California years ago. I had this guy that I installed many shingles alongside of. And, uh, and this guy, he was like, did not like wearing his tool belt, right? So he would just have his roofing gun and his knife in his pocket. And I get it, wearing your tool belt's not very comfortable. And when a nail didn't get driven deep enough by uh, his nail gun, he'd flip the gun over and whack it with, with the gun. And I was like, bro, like, you're going to destroy that gun. And his line always was like, not my gun. Belong to the company, right? And, and my point in bringing up this story is it was like he was using this thing for something which it was not designed for. And it inevitably destroys this gun that has a really good purpose. It's a lot nicer using a nail gun than hammering them all in. And um, in the same way, our body has a purpose that's to be honored. And when we misuse it, it does a ton of damage. And that's why you're going to find in the New Testament such strong language around deviation from God's design in what we do with our bodies. It predominantly centers around sexuality, right? Again and again and again. And it's because our body has design, has purpose written into it. And you compare this, this, this idea of, you know, honoring the body with, let's look at uh, Psalm 139. Psalm 139 tells us this. What's the psalmist saying to God? Verse 13 to 15, I'm going to read out. For you formed my inward parts. You covered me in my mother's womb. In other words, you clothed me. You put skin and flesh on me. You built this body in my mother's womb. I will praise you, for I'm fearfully and wonderfully made. Marvelous are your works, and that my soul knows very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was made in secret and skillfully wrought in the lowest parts of the earth, which is a, a metaphor, again, for the womb. And it's this, this really high view that the body that he's living in, that we live in, is something that was created by God, fearfully and wonderfully made. It's like a, it's like a work of art. You realize that your body that you're in right now has high value by virtue of the fact simply of who created it. I'm going to share this real quick. It's from last week as well, for those who missed it. But, um, you know, a piece of art can have profound dollar value on it based on who painted it. The insurance right now on the Mona Lisa is $900 million. The most expensive painting ever sold, I believe, was $547 million. Another da Vinci painting, Salvador Mundi, which is a, a picture of Jesus, the savior of the world. And so there's this great value on what's this art because of who made it. There is infinitely more value on your body because of who made you. Not only that, but you're made in his image. You bear the image of the most glorious good being ever to be, ever will be. The significance of that is huge. I'm going to read you a quote from um, Rabbi Lord Jonathan Sachs. Anybody familiar with who he is? Well-known rabbi. He passed away a few years ago uh, from England. Really brilliant man. And these are his words. 
In the ancient world, it was rulers, emperors, and pharaohs who were held to be in the image of God. So what Genesis was saying is that we are all royalty. Any early reader of Genesis would have been struck with this astonishing claim. In the time that it was written and people began to read it, they were struck with this claim that was being presented that every single person who walks the face of the earth is royalty because they bear the image of God. Your body is a profound work of art. And it declares the glory and the purpose of a good creator. And I want us to understand that when God said, I'm going to make mankind in my image, what did he do? He formed us from the earth, from the dust. This is fleshy body in which you live. Sometimes we buy into this idea that it's just, you know, our spirit and our soul that really matters to God. But actually, this body that you live in is of profound worth and value to him, so much so that when the last days come, he's going to raise it up. The promise of Scripture is not just for your, your spirit to float off into some you know, ghost-like existence, but that actually your body, that is of profound worth to God, is going to be raised up. He's making new heavens, new earth, and giving new bodies. And what I find, I guess, sad and disheartening to me is when I look at a lot of the popular views today on some of the really controversial topics that we could all think of, they tend to be based on a rather low view of the body. That the body's insignificant, that the body doesn't speak in any way. And, And when we have a foundation of a worldview that lacks a creator, that lacks God, it's really easily understandable how we get there to that conclusion. Because when you have a creation with no creator, you have a universe, a material world that lacks purpose, that lacks meaning. You're still with me? So I'm gonna, I want to read to you just a little bit segments from from this book highly recommend it if you can't see it it's called love thy body and much of what you're hearing me say uh, has been getting dropped into me reading this lady's book nancy piercy she's a university professor and um and she really wrestles out with this stuff and i want to read to you a quote from her book it's a little long but it's worth it so this is on the idea of a created order that lacks, or I I should say, a natural world that lacks creator. And it's the kind of logical conclusion. Here we go. If nature does not reveal God's will, then it is a morally neutral realm where humans may impose their will. There's nothing in nature that humans are morally obligated to respect. Nature becomes the realm of value-neutral facts, available to serve whatever values humans may choose. And because the human body is part of nature, it too is demoted to the level of amoral mechanism, just just a, a machine with no moral meaning or purpose in it whatsoever. 
Let's read that again. It, is, it too is demoted to the level of an amoral mechanism, subject to the will of the autonomous self. If the body has no intrinsic purpose built in by God, then all that matters are human purposes. The body is reduced to a clump of matter, a collection of atoms and molecules, not essentially different from any other chance configuration of matter. It is a raw material to be manipulated and controlled to serve the human agenda like any other natural resource. We tend to think of materialism as a philosophy that places high value on the material world because it claims that matter is all that exists. Yet ironically, in reality, it places a low value on the material world as purely particles in motion with no higher purpose or meaning. Are you with me? Somebody count how many times I asked that question today. So in the same way we have this, um, this, this fact-value split that we talked about, what you'll see begins to happen is the actual person starts to get pulled apart. And no, no better way to, to show this but jump right into another quote, Okay. And I could, I could have told you about the article that this is being quoted from and acted like I did all the research myself, but no, I'm reading it straight from this book. A few years ago, an article appeared by a British broadcaster named Miranda Sawyer, who described herself as a liberal feminist. In the article, she said she had always been firmly pro-choice until she became pregnant with her own baby. Then she began to struggle I was calling the life inside me a baby because I wanted it. Yet if I hadn't, I, wouldn't, I would think of it just as a group of cells that it was okay to kill. That seemed irrational to me, maybe even immoral. Babies in the womb don't qualify as human only if someone wants them. Sawyer had run up against the wall of reality, and reality did not fit her ideology. So she began researching the subject and even produced a documentary. Finally, she reached her conclusion. Here's a quote. In the end, I have to agree that life begins at conception. So yes, abortion is ending that life. Then she added, but perhaps the fact of life isn't what is important. It's whether that life has grown enough to start becoming a person. What has happened here, end quote there, what has happened here to the concept of the human being? It has been torn in two. If the baby is human life from conception but not a person until some later time, then clearly these are two different things. This is a radically fragmented, fractured, dualistic view of human beings. Carrying on another portion here. Thus we have a new category of individual. The human non-person. Later, at some undefined point in time, it becomes a person, typically defined in terms of a certain level of cognitive functioning, consciousness, and self-awareness. Only then does it attain moral and legal standing. This is called personhood theory, and it is an outworking of the fact-value split. To be biologically human is a scientific fact, but to be a person is an ethical concept defined by what we value. So in the thinking, we could read on and on and on, stuff like it, but in the thinking, being human is no longer equivalent to being a person. 
The biology and the science is so clearly evident that, that you have a human being from point of conception. There's no point at which there's a transition in which now it's obviously human. You have everything you need for the development of a human being right there from that moment, and it is a constant progression. It's a gradual unfolding. No magic moment. The only magic moment I know of is when the sperm hits the egg. There's actually now science can video it, and they see a burst of light when they meet together, and it's zinc coming off the egg, I believe. But, um, but the difficulty with this person here theory, and again, I'm not, I'm not wanting to come after just one idea here, one thing. What I'm jumping into this to help us see is that, that you pull God out of the picture, and all of a sudden things start to pull apart. It's not held together. So not only do you have this fact-value split between moral law and laws of nature, but the very person you are starts to get parsed apart and the people around us. And, 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 and definition of what a, what a person is starts to fall apart as well. And it's like the, the, the issue is, is there's really no scientific moment that you can point to at which this human non-person becomes a, a person. And if you read like different bioethicists try to land on this, they're all over the map. I'm going to read a little bit more to you and then that'll be the end of reading from this book. But <clears throat> So this is on the timing question. When does that group of cells go from mere human life to person worth protecting. Most people say a baby becomes a person while still in the womb. Miranda Sawyer, the British broadcaster whose story we read earlier, concluded that personhood begins sometime before birth. Quote, once an embryo has developed enough to feel pain or begin a personality, then ending that life is wrong. End quote. But bioethicist John Harris scoffs at that idea. Quote, Nine months of development leaves the human embryo far short of the emergence of anything that can be called a person. Harris defines a person as, quote, a creature capable of valuing its own existence, end quote. Killing is wrong only in the case of someone who is cognitively developed enough to harbor an explicit, explicit conscience, conscious desire to live. Quote, non-persons or potential persons cannot be wronged in this way because death does not deprive them of anything they can value. Harris argues if they cannot wish to live, they cannot have that wish frustrated by being killed. As though the worth of life depended on our private will. James Watson, co-discoverer of the DNA double helix, advocates waiting three days after a baby is born before deciding whether it should be allowed to live. The rationale is that some genetic defects are not detectable until after birth. His colleague, Francis Crick, agrees, quote, no newborn infant should be declared human until it has passed certain tests regarding its genetic endowment, and if it fa fails these tests, it forfeits the right to life. Peter Singer, who's a professor, I forget the university, but Peter Singer says, even a three-year-old is a gray case. After all, how much cognitive functioning does a toddler have? Now, now, I hear all the ahs in the, you know, in the crowd because it's, it's pretty intense stuff to read, I know. And it would be a total misrepresentation, misrepresentation to say that, that, that each of those views 
represents the view of an entire group of people. The point in reading them is that even you know, in, this, in this field of thought and buying into this body-person dichotomy and split, no one can land on where that magic moment is. And the beauty, the beauty of what Scripture offers us is that all people, no matter size, no matter age, no matter cognitive function, intellect, desire, etc., are created in the image of God and endowed with profound value and immense worth. It's a beautiful view. Often, often accused of oppressive, often accused of whatever. And I, and I realize we're racing through like huge ideas here and I highly welcome questions and dialogue and conversation. But I celebrate the view that says that every single one of you is fearfully and wonderfully made. That each one of you bears the image of God and you have profound purpose and meaning written into the very fabric of your body. That your body is worth protecting. Your body is worth valuing. And the body of all those who grace this earth are worth Caring for, valuing, honoring, protecting. When you start to look at the natural order, the way things work, a beautiful picture starts to emerge. The coming together of two people who are very different from one another, what I'm speaking of is different genitalia, in love, come together in romantic love. Life is the fruit of it. That's a beautiful picture all in itself. It speaks of design. It speaks of a, a God of love, a good God of love. And I get there's some not-so-good scenarios that lead to pregnancy as well but the way it was intended to be. And that, and that brings us back to the whole idea of intention. There's design. There's purpose. There's a way it's supposed to work. And when, and when followed, something gloriously good emerges. The baby, the child's dependence on the mother is a beautiful picture of our relationship with God. God actually refers to himself being like a nursing mother in Scripture. He refers to himself being like a mother, Jesus does, when he speaks of his love for, for Jerusalem. And there's actually, like, science shows that there's a bonding hormone that is released in a woman's body as she's pregnant. As she goes through the pregnancy, there's actually a bonding process that happens between these two lives, that not just physically, but psychologically, 
And that's the thing, guys. When the more like brain science emerges, the more we realize there's dramatic connection between our physiology and our psychology. And these moral values start to make way more sense within the created order. And there's even a profound bond that happens at birth, not just between the mother and the child, but when a father sees their child for the first time, there's a hormone released in the body, I believe it's oxytocin, that creates a significant bond between the father and the child. You can read testimonies of men who say their life was changed the minute they saw their child. Can I see any hands? Anybody know about that? I remember the tears that started to flow the first time I saw my son. There's now neuroscience coming out that actually shows that a fetus that develops with the presence of the biological father in proximity to the pregnant woman, its, it's, it's brain function develops better than outside the sound of that person's voice. Again, we're touching quickly on subjects here. But anybody as well who's in here and you're a parent, you know that having a child, not only is there a child developing, there's an adult developing as a result of that child's presence in your life. Now, why, why do I say all that? Not to say that if you never have kids, you're never going to reach your full potential. That's not what the message is at all. There, there's, a, there's a great place given within Scripture for the single life, for the celibate life, for the life without children, without a family. Our Lord, King Jesus, was a celibate single man. But, what the, but the point is, is that in this natural order, There's a beautiful, beautiful picture that emerges every step of the way. And what makes the the ending of that process extremely tragic and sad is not just the, the, the ending of the life, but what happens to the person who is carrying the child. What happens to the the father who helped conceive the child? The loss. There is tremendous grief and guilt and trauma and depression that many people report having following the ending of that life. And this is not to in any way make light of the, the difficulty that many people face. Like I get, if we want to focus on just this topic of... Abortion, procreation, uh, there's a whole lot of detail and mess and, and difficulty that people face. Again, most of which stems from a, a sex ethic that's outside of the design. That's another conversation. But what I say, the reason I want to bring up the trauma and the the pain and the depression is because, again, when we talk about these things, we often get caught up into this ridiculous us-versus-them culture war kind of thinking. And it's not helping anybody. Jesus is with and loves every single person walking the face of the earth, regardless of choices we've made, things we've done. 
you and I included. If we read on what we read from Romans earlier, I love the beginning of chapter 2, Paul makes really clear. Just FYI, guys, this includes all of you. And, uh, you know, if you are judging anybody, you are, you're judging yourself. Don't forget that it's the goodness, the kindness, and the patience of God that changes us, that leads to repentance. We have to be a people known for love and care. I heard a student quoted saying it seemed to her that the church was more welcoming to convicted felons than women who had had abortions. And it was easy to see in the number of ministries that, that reach out to people coming out of jail or in jail and how few there are to women who have gone through with an abortion. And, and in talking about these things, what I want us to really catch is that the Bible lifts up the value and the worth of all people. And it calls us to fight for the good of all people. To work for the good of all people in the world. That's why I think it's way better to have a rescue mission paradigm than a culture war paradigm. Because we live in this world and we uphold the truth that we do because we believe it's liberating and it brings freedom. We believe that it leads unto our true purpose and the way things God intended it to be. And our, our history as God's people is wrought with all sorts of tragedy, injustice, but it's also been full of caring for the vulnerable, for the poor, for the outcast, for the unwanted child, which was oftentimes in ancient culture a girl. Even in many places in the world today, it's still, you know, there's a documentary out there that says the three most dangerous words in the world are, it's a girl. And there's still places in the world where that's a reality. And, and my heart, my goal in in Diving into these things is that we would be equipped with the Lord's perspective of the way things ought to be. That we'd be that we'd be gripped with the love for our world, for our city, for people. This is not this is not about pushing any sort of you know particular thing on anyone. This is about caring for people, caring enough. Say it again. It's not about winning arguments or defending a belief. It's about winning people. Come on, John. Winning, winning people to know the Lord, to know his goodness, to know his kindness. And my heart, my desire, why I opened with the passage from Timothy about you know, being the pillar of truth is because I am not interested in being part of a generation that is responsible for, for tragic beliefs going on unchecked. But I'm also not interested in being a part of a railing, angry, dominant, argumentative church. So trying to figure that out. And what I'm convinced of is that is, is that our role is to continually lift up the beauty 
and point to the beauty of what the Lord has made and what he's designed. And so I think the, the, the what's wrong with question is just a, a bad place to start. You know? Can we pray? All right. Why don't you stand up? And I'm going to pray to close. So, Father, we just say our simple prayer is this. Help us to embody and articulate the truth of your word well. So that many more would see the beauty, the good news of the gospel, for which we ought not to be ashamed. And God, that through the light and the beauty of your word in our lives, many would be drawn to know you more. Father, we repent from every dominating, argumentative tone. Spirit, and I pray that you would fill us with your love. Fill us with kindness. Fill us with patience. Fill us with grace. Fill us with wisdom and creativity and how to communicate the goodness of who you are and your ways in this world. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to the Lifetree Church Sermon of the Week. At Lifetree, we are a family all about declaring and displaying Jesus to transform lives and benefit our city. If you'd like to find out more about Lifetree, you can find us online at lifetree.ca.